Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, September 30th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio today via the magic of Skype, we have Mr. Dan Klein this week. Dan, how's everything going? Uh, things are good. How are you, Jason? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You had a big, big uh, member event here last week that uh, took a lot out of us, I think, and so I had a nice weekend to just relax, take it easy, recover, get back in here. Full throttle. Last day of the quarter. Brand brand new quarter starts tomorrow, Dan. I I saw the pictures from the event last week. I, I had actually thought about coming down, but it was my 19th anniversary, so I sort of want to invest in having a 20th anniversary, so <laughs> figured it was best to not come. But, I can, I can, man, it looks like we put on a good show. I think that was probably a wise call. Always, always invest in the marriage first. Everything else is secondary. Um, so we are gonna tap into a few things here today. We're gonna talk about uh, the the payment space and these these credit cards that we see coming out here, uh, and in the Apple Card as well. Dan, you're gonna you're gonna go into some of the uh, the different rewards cards, uh, compare them to uh, Apple Card, and sort of examine what that space is looking like today and the opportunities that that are out there for uh, some of these different cards companies. Uh, we are going to uh, offer up a few more of the what was the last stock you bought and why uh, tweets. We have some more great listener tweets out there telling us about the stocks that they're buying and why they're buying them. Uh, we, of course, will have uh, one to watch for you at the end of the show. But we're starting today's show off with uh, the news item that came out late last week. Wells Fargo has a new CEO, Dan Charles Scharf. The head of Bank of New York Mellon uh, used to work at Visa. He is now going to be running the show at Wells Fargo. Uh, tell me, what was your what was your reaction when you first read about well, this? So, to be fair, former CEO at Visa, so it wasn't like he was just like customer service or, <laughs> yeah, or something unimportant. Exactly. Well, the challenge with this is is he seems like a good pick. But this job has been open six months. Like, did a headhunter reach out to you on this one? Like, it felt <laughs> like no one wanted this job. And there's a logical reason nobody wanted this job. This is a very damaged bank that's under some restrictions on the size of the assets it can own. And in many ways, and, and this is often the case of, you know, in professional football, if you're trying to get a coach to take over a bad team, why would someone leave a good situation at, say, a college for a bad situation in the pros? So they talk to a lot of people. And on paper, this seems like a textbook sort of good but uninspired pick. What you don't really see is this is an outsider to a company. And they had to go outsider. Any Anybody inside was somewhat tainted. Yeah. But – can he come in and really change a culture? And the problem at Wells Fargo seems to be at the executive level. I don't know if that's your bank. They're my bank. And I find them a wonderful retail experience as a bank that just said sort of was a little bit rotten on the, the top. Huh. You know, they're not my bank. Um, I mean, they've they've owned a mortgage or two that we had at some point down the line or whatever. But we I mean, we we set up accounts with Bank of America a long time ago when we were traveling, and the main reason was, um, well, I think primarily it was because they had the best online banking operation at the time when online banking was really just getting started. And I mean, to be fair, I did work at Bank of America for a couple of years. <laughs> um, I do, you know, I I understood these 
these culture problems, some of these these problems with the fake accounts and, and these benchmarks and in you know, employees feeling pressured to reach certain metrics. You know that was not just a Wells Fargo thing. I think that's pervasive in a lot of industries, particularly the bigger a company gets, because it's just more difficult to manage. So I wasn't terribly surprised when I saw all of that stuff happening with Wells Fargo. But then to see how many layers, you know, you know, you kept on peeling off a new new layer of of like just total total just disregard for either consumers or investors or both so it was clearly stuff that was going on for a long time and yeah i mean to your point he's got a major um he's got a major uh, task ahead in just developing a new culture that i think can make a lot of people feel good about the bank where they're working or the bank that they use yeah, and he gave some very measured statements, sort of talking about how we're under some some restrictions, we have to peel it back, we have to figure it out. And I think what got them into this trouble in the first place is managing to the quarterly result. Yeah. So you're building bonuses, you're building you're structuring everything so you peak every quarter. And I think one of the things we've seen with a lot of publicly traded companies is if you're big enough, you should say that's not our goal. Our goal is to be the best customer service company we can, to retain people to long term to build assets through building trust and this seems like a steady hand i'm not sure this is the guy who leads wells fargo for 20 years but i think this is the kind of like industry veteran nobody's going to be too scared of him he's not necessarily going to come in and bring in all his his own people there's been a ton of upheaval at wells fargo so i think he can just sort of like say hey an adult is in the room i i don't know your culture and i'm going to listen but we're also going to break things and change things and he seems like someone who could do that that the industry respects and if you've run visa you've sort of worked through all these levels levels of regulatory issues and working with other banks and dealing with sort of the technology so again, he might not have been the first choice. He might not have been the fiftieth choice, frankly. <laughs> but he does seem like a good pick. Well, and I mean, uh, to your point too about going outside the organization. I mean, I agree with you. They they absolutely needed to go outside. And, and frankly, given the situation that Tim Sloan was put into, I was really surprised to see that they didn't go outside from the very beginning because it, it didn't really take a genius to to realize that Tim Sloan was part of the team that was part of the problem to begin with. I understand that reticence, though. I mean, so you know, you, you work at The Motley Fool. I, I, I'm a writer for The Motley Fool. If all of a sudden we brought in a chief operating officer who was from outside the company and it was someone who really wanted to change a lot of things, there'd be big pushback. We, we have a culture, sort of a way of doing things. On the other hand, if you're someplace where Everything is wrong. I mean, billions of dollars in fines, millions of fake accounts, uh, an incentive structure built around cheating, basically. It, it, it was hard, but I understand why they didn't in the first place, because Tim Sloan was someone who had been there. While he was part of it, he wasn't one of the ringleaders, and it felt logical to sort of give him a chance. But the reality is, it's it's almost impossible to come back from that kind of even adjacent kind of taint. So this sets the deck clear, and it sort of puts Wells Fargo on the path. So every conversation about Wells Fargo doesn't have to be about this. Real quick before we wrap up here, um, you know, it, it looks like he is going to be tele- telecommuting, right? I mean, uh, Wells so, Fargo so headquarters that, in San Francisco, and he's going to spend sounds like in New York, giant. Right? giant red flag. He literally could have been waving a flag at the press conference. Yeah. Look, I'm a big fan of telecommuting for 
mid-level workers. Your HR assistant can tell can telecommute. Your fifth-ranking person in accountant or a coder, they don't need to be at headquarters. I know he said he's going to be there a lot, but I'm sorry, you're the CEO of a major bank. If he said, I'm going to be there for two years, then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start telecommuting. That scares me because the history of CEOs not being in the office is not very good. And it's very hard to sort of take over an organization where all of the people who didn't get this job internally, they're there. They're going to have sort of their hands on the level levers of power. And that's very hard to manage when you're not in the office. And look, I hope he means he's there four days a week and he's flying home for the weekend and, and that's fine. <laughs> but if he thinks he can do this job like on Slack, that's probably not good when you have to upend a – I don't know how many years, but Tim Sloan was there for 31 years, so longer than 31 years level of culture. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, okay, moving on. It does look like uh, there there is a we're seeing a lot of companies out there today trying to gain more and more in the way of customer loyalty by linking us to a type of rewards card, whether it's Walmart or whether it's Target. Uh, maybe you're maybe you're an Amazon Prime um, customer and you've got one of those. Prime visas, like I've got. Um, I mean, I mean, it really is. It is all about the rewards cards today. And now with Apple Card coming out, uh, and if, if I recall correctly, here, Dan, you actually have Apple Card now. So, um, so I, I, I do, and and I honestly did it because I needed a new MacBook, and I, I was going to buy a fairly expensive. I, I've never purchased a new computer. I've, I've always purchased like a, an Apple refurb. So I've, I'd never spent a thousand dollars on a computer before. Right. So that seemed like a really good time to get three percent cash. Back and it's immediate cash back. Um, but Apple made the process so ridiculously easy. You just enter a few things on your iPhone, and then it not only tells you all of the different terms, gives you the opportunity to accept or not accept, you can use it right away. So I in the same 15 minutes, applied for the card, got the card, ordered the computer I wanted, and then maybe like 10 days later, the the actual card, which is like you don't need it, it's kind of like the the card they give you at Starbucks to to show that you're a gold member, which I don't think that's a thing anymore, but it used to be. <laughs> yeah, I remember. It, it's it's almost like a status symbol because there's really no scenario where you wouldn't use it through your phone, and it's a very clever interface. It's a lot of customer friendly stuff, like not charging you uh, if you miss a payment. Sort of, you know, uh, you can. It reminds you you can make multiple payments in a month if you want to keep your interest charges down. It shows you everything right in the Apple Wallet. Um, so for me, that was a useful card. On the other hand, this whole soup of cards has become very confusing because, like you, I have an Amazon card that is only in my Amazon account. I don't even know where the physical card is, <laughs> and it is a very good cashback program. Uh, I believe it's 2% on everything. There might be some some other perks to it. Um, but that card, I have the problem with when I applied, I only asked for a low limit. So sometimes, because I buy from Amazon so much, I find myself going, oh God, I haven't paid that card off in two weeks and now, now I've spent $2,000 on Amazon <laughs> in the last, but I have to go pay that bill. Uh, so as a consumer, it's become very tricky in that the days where you could just have one card with a high limit, a couple of backup cards. Now you have to be very strategic and look where you spend your money and which card gives you the sort of most bang for your buck. If you are a regular digital Walmart customer, you probably want the Walmart card. It's it's pegged towards driving people to buy for delivery 
or online orders from Walmart. To me, that makes absolutely no sense because they're incentivizing behavior that costs them more money to fulfill. And I just saw uh, one of their retail heads speak and he made it very clear that they will not charge higher prices uh, for digital or delivered orders, though they do charge a delivery fee or you could sign up for sort of an unlimited delivery program. So it's becoming very tricky and it's kind of ever-changing. Apple actually inched up some of its non-Apple rewards because people weren't happy with that stuff. So you not only have to look at like the immediate fine print, you kind of have to check in with your cards every 60 or 90 days. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. That was the point I was going to make was it does, you know, it is, it really is all about the rewards for most of these cards. I mean, I think you look at two things, rewards and do they charge any kind of a fee? And I mean, in today's day and age, you really, I don't think you can get away with charging a fee very often unless you're American Express. And, you know, somehow (laughs) they've continued to do it and I've continued to keep my American Express card because I do find the utility, particularly when I'm traveling, that American Express card has, has been very helpful. Um, the, you know, the thing is, I've had it for I think like ten or fifteen years, and at that point, you know, you probably it probably makes sense just to have it open from a credit score perspective. But clearly, most of my spending is done on that Amazon card. And and you're right. I mean, you have to check those those rewards every sixty or ninety days because they do change. And it, I think longer term, though, they really do all kind of gather together, right? I mean, any of these companies can really get out there and sweeten the pot a little bit to make their card look a little bit better. They can, and you really need to look at how you shop. Because I buy so much on Amazon, it makes sense to have the Amazon program. The the new Target loyalty program isn't credit card based, but it layers on top of their existing credit cards, so you can save sort of an you get an added one percent back, and all you have to do is sign up. Sometimes it is a hassle to manage these things, and you know, and remembering, okay, I'm booking travel. Use the card that gets the best travel reward, right. or this card is giving four but it's only for the next 60 days, so I should put the purchase there. You, you can't just sort of grab what's in your wallet, though it does make sense sometimes to just have a highly rated card that's good overall, because you, you don't want to have to like Google things when you're stopping to get gas to figure out which card has 2%, which has 3%. And I will go back to what you said in American Express, only because Matt Frankel, who is, is often the, the guest on this show, uh, made the case for me why I should spend $550 a year to get the card that allows me into the uh, the airport lounges. Is that the and platinum actually, card? <laughs> I, I don't even know which one it is. It must but be platinum. He, he was sending me pictures from uh, one of the New York airports. Uh, it's a free dinner, free drinks, and it was a very luxurious looking dinner. You get uh, a TSA pre-check, you get the money back for that. So he sort of laid out to me the argument of you're spending this money anyway. You could get all this stuff included, and because you fly out of Las Vegas two, three, maybe four times a year, if you timed your flights to use this lounge and have a meal there, you actually could come out ahead on that $550. So don't dismiss something just because there's a fee, but really look at what you get for that fee. If what you get for that fee is a service like, say, Clear, which I love and use at airports all the time, if that's free, well, that knocks off whatever you would have paid for Clear. If you get a free Prime membership or a free Netflix, whatever it is, factor in every perk. Know which card you should use to, say, when you get your rental car because it fills in the insurance gap. Know which card to use when you're buying something on eBay and might get uh, taken advantage of and need to go after somebody. 
you have to do your homework more so than ever because every company wants you to shop more there. And if they have to kick 2 or 3%, even 5% your way to do that, they're being very aggressive about it. It's a complicated world, Dan. I just try to keep it simple. And then it's, I think, more like my investing strategy. You just find something good, latch on to it, and hang on for a while. And maybe that's what I'll just keep doing. But you mean yeah. you don't have like a spreadsheet for which credit card to use each place? <laughs> no, no, I do not. And I think the chances of that happening are slim to none. And slim, as my dad would say, has just left town. Uh, but moving on, let's uh, jump into the Twitter sphere. We have a tweet uh, from Stuart Simpson at the Real Mister Willow uh, from about a week ago, and he had, he had asked a question on Twitter that I felt like it demanded really a, a better than a, just a one tweet answer. Um, it was about a dividend video that we did. We did a live stream a YouTube video uh, a week ago on dividend investing. And I had called that Microsoft as a uh, dividend stock uh, that I liked for the next uh, decade or something like that. And so, Stuart asked a a good question here. He says, the thing I want to know is, why recommend Microsoft for a 1.37% dividend yield when a company like uh, ticker OHI, or Omega Healthcare Investors, has nearly doubled since February 2018 and offers a 7.51% dividend. There are lots of companies that offer a 5% plus dividend, and I never see them wrecked. And, and Stuart, you're right. I mean, there are a lot of companies out there that that offer some pretty sweet looking dividends. But you know, it is it is about more than just that yield, uh, which was what we were trying to talk about in that in that studio there that day of the live stream. Uh, but but when you when you hear this question, Dan, what what do you think? Well, you know, it's it's a bit like dating. We're we're both married, and you might meet someone in your dating days. Where you're like, oh my god, she has the prettiest smile ever. And for a date or two, that's going to carry you through the relationship. But as you get to know her, if she has a terrible personality, you're probably not going to keep dating her because her smile is good. So when you look at a company, you really have to look at all the factors. Well, why Microsoft? Because they have switched to a sustainable subscription model, and they've become sort of a revolutionary company, which is very hard to do when you're a legacy company. So you have to look at the entire business. Do you believe in its sustainability? And a dividend is is often a way to distract you from underlying issues in the company. And again, I don't know this particular stock, so it might be a fabulous buy that would check all the boxes. But you really have to look at the whole picture. And a dividend might be to keep a stock from crashing while the company is experiencing other problems. And that's fine if a turnaround is possible. But the one I always looked at was Frontier Communications, a cable company that bet really big on expansion right before cord cutting started and sort of almost immediately undermined their business, putting them in a position where they kept a dividend long after they should because it propped up their stock price. So, you really need to look at all the factors. Yeah, I I agree with you. And and I think a point to note, too, is that Omega Healthcare Investors is a real estate investment trust. So, it's, it's a healthcare industry REIT. And, and real estate investment trusts are known for their high dividend yields. They, they qualify for this REIT structure, meaning they have to pay, pay out all of their, their REIT profitability in the form of a dividend to shareholders. So, REITs, generally speaking, 
maintain much higher dividend yields for that reason alone. Now, that is neither good nor bad on its own, but it is just something to note. And real estate investment trusts have had a pretty good stretch here recently as real estate has um, you know, presented a number of, of new opportunities here between healthcare and retail and everywhere else uh, under the sun. But, but it is worth noting that you know, in really low interest rate environments like we're in today, real estate investment trusts can be seen as even better investments because that is where you're going to get more yield. You'll find more yield than you will on uh, other dividend stocks like Microsoft, for example. And so that attractive yield brings in more buyers, which then pus- pushes up the share price. And so that's all fine and dandy. That's great. It's it's not to say that it won't come back down or that it will, but it is something to, just to note that typically real estate investment trusts uh, can perform very well in these low interest rate environments because they are seen as great alternatives for uh, really attractive yields. Uh, so it is it is all about understanding the whole business, uh, the sustainability of the dividend, uh, understanding how long they've paid the dividend, will they be able to raise that dividend every year? You know, we talk about dividend aristocrats a lot here, where companies that have grown their dividend annually for at least twenty five consecutive years. Uh, Microsoft is not a dividend aristocrat yet because they haven't even had a dividend for twenty five years. Uh, my suspicion is that they will be a dividend aristocrat um, in a short amount of time, though. And, and that's another thing I think with Microsoft is you can look forward to that dividend being raised um, every year for the foreseeable future, and it's going to be pretty darn sustainable given the business model that they have. Yeah, and I also think the average investor is probably understand understands what Microsoft is more than they do sort of technical real estate investment trust yeah. Yeah. investments. So it's one of those things where I personally if I can't wrap my hand hands around it and I I study retail like that so real estate is something I I have an opinion on but I honestly don't know what the long-term picture is in a country that needs less store space and more living, whether a particular real estate investment, I mean, even medical, are we going to go to doctor's offices on the level we do? You're a big Teladoc fan. So am I. Yeah, I'd so like to believe not. Lo- <laughs> What's that? I'd like to believe not. I'd like to believe that these virtual healthcare companies are making it so that we don't necessarily have to go to the doctor's office if we need something. Right. So, So can you honestly talk about and you study this the impact that will have on where doctors need to be for real estate it could dramatically change things you could have a lot of doctors operating in phone booths just doing digital medicine all day well you're so, right and i mean i think you're also seeing uh, cvs for example which is utilizing their big footprint of stores and basically converting those into healthcare centers as well so i mean just going back to your point about real estate and how it's being viewed today and how its use cases are are changing uh, due to the changing i mean landscape thanks to technology i mean technology is changing everything and and, and healthcare is certainly uh, not exempt from that yeah, and those are much more complicated questions than will people still use Windows 10 years from now? Is Word still going to be a thing when my kid is my age? I could pretty comfortably say yes on both of those because <laughs> I don't think we're going to evolve past the need for operating systems and word processors. Well, that's a good question, Stuart. We do appreciate it. Hopefully, that sheds a little bit of light on why Omega would have such a high dividend yield and why that can be good. And that could also be something just to keep an eye on. Um, and, and as always, uh, feel free to keep firing away with those questions if we can ever help. Uh, we want to jump in real quickly here to a segment that's starting to gain a little bit of traction here, Dan. It's something that Matt and I Try it a few weeks back, and we just asked each other, what was the last stock you bought and why? 
Um, and I tell you, every week now we've got our, our wonderful listeners firing in on Twitter and email telling us the last stock they bought and why. Uh, Israel Hilario, he's at the Twitter hand, the Twitter handle here, Mexican Homie at Mexican Homie. And he says the last stock that he bought was uh, Stitch Fix. Why? He feels like it's one of the few companies where people are willingly handing out their data and they're making excellent use of it. They're growing to other apparel types. Also, feels like a matter of time before they are the default shopping stop. Thanks, Israel. Appreciate that. And then Gustafsson, at Rib Crazed. He chimed in, said, I've been eyeing Etsy for a couple weeks, and I told my wife about it. Her response, why haven't you already bought it? Uh, thoroughly convinced me that our portfolio would be a welcoming home for an initial position on Etsy. And Rib Crazed, hey, listen, I own Etsy too, so I think it's probably a good move. I think uh, you'll be happy that you bought that one. Stitch Fix, I just don't know enough about it yet. Dan, how do you feel about Stitch Fix? I think Stitch Fix, Stitch Fix is in a very crowded space, and they're an acquisition target. It's it's very interesting underlying technology, and it's part of a big change. But I'm not ready to say that they're the winner, and they're going to crowd out the competition. Yeah, I think the concept is a winner. Certainly, you're seeing retail companies all over trying that that model out. The concept is for sure a winner. Uh, so hey, time will tell. But uh, we want to know what the last stock you bought is and why. So make sure to hit us on email at industry focus at fool.com or get us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. Tell us what's the last stock you bought and why. And hey, if you're looking for some more stock ideas and recommendations, make sure to check out our stock advisor service. You'll get stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every month, best buys now, and a whole lot more. Just go to if.fool.com and we've got a special 50% discount for our listeners. Check it out at if.fool.com. Okay, Dan, we're going to wrap this week up here, as always, with one to watch. What is a stock that you'll be watching this coming week? I want to talk about Peloton, a stock that Dylan Lewis and I first looked at before their IPO. And what I want to bring up is there is a disconnect sometimes between people knowing a company, being enamored with the company, and their actual business. Let's remember again what Peloton does. They sell $2,500 exercise bikes <laughs> in order to get you to buy a $39 a month subscription. And yes, their content costs will eventually be low because their library of people working out uh, will, will be so massive that they won't need as many new pieces. But that's a very limiting model because if all of a sudden they start selling a cheaper bike or a different exercise product, that that's they're going to undercut their whole business model. So uh, we said about it before, and I still agree. This is a good private business. They can be profitable. Are they going to post 50% growth every quarter? Are they going to eventually produce any growth? It might be the kind of thing that just tops out. And I didn't think it was a great business. And I think so far the stock market has shown that when you look at the actual numbers, this is a tough path for a company to follow. Yeah, yeah, that's one that I haven't felt fully uh, convinced on yet either. So uh, I appreciate what you're saying there. Um, I'm going to be going with uh, McCormick. Everybody knows it's my favorite spice maker. Ticker is MKC, uh, and they have earnings actually out Tuesday Let me just morning. What's your second favorite spice maker? Well, it's a little company called Dizzy Pig, and it's based out of Manassas, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not convinced. I, th I think they actually. I think that McCormick perhaps supplies them a little. 
little bit. Dizzy Pig is a bit more on the craft spice uh, market where they're making their own concoctions, but it's really good stuff. I recommend you check it out. But going Somehow back to McCormick, have an answer. <laughs> well, yeah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> going back to McCormick, though, you know, we talked earlier about these dividend stocks and dividend aristocrats. McCormick is a dividend aristocrat, and uh, it was it was really refreshing to see last quarter that they reiterated their sales guidance for the year, but they bumped up earnings guidance a little bit as they continue to to work out some efficiencies in the business. And if you go all the way back to the end of January here this year, uh, the stock sold off on on earnings, and, and I mean it, it was around one hundred twenty dollars a share. I was calling it a gift back then, and um, and lo and behold, it's it's had a good uh, resurgence here. I think the next thing on the radar for these guys is uh, to to be looking for any hint of an upcoming deal. Now that they've got this RB Foods acquisition uh, taken care of, they've they've made mention on a couple of calls already that they are going to be looking to make another deal happen here sooner rather than later. So, I think that's the news I'm going to be looking out for. But, uh, you know, lovely company. It's one I own personally. I think it's a dividend you can uh, rely on. They seem to be very proud of that dividend aristocrat status. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to join us. It was great having you. Thanks for having me. All right. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Dan Klein, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.